You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are good, uh, and in your loving kindness, uh, you sent your Son, Jesus, uh, to live as one of us and to die for us. And so, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to this truth and uh, what our destiny is in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews is going to continue. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Hebrews is going to continue to build upon itself, and it it, it, it does here in chapter 2. We're only going to get to verses 5 through 10 today. One, because I knew that we would be tight on time. And quite frankly, uh, if we had gone all the way through verse uh, 18, it would have been far too much. Way too much. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 10. And you can find that on page 1001. Uh, in your pew Bibles. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their their salvation perfect through suffering. This is the word of the Lord. So the build-up to it is that we've understood Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king. We see that early on in chapter 1. He is uh, our prophet in that he comes and he teaches the way of God. In fact, it's not just that he's a prophet, (coughs) excuse me, but he's the one that speaks to the prophets as God himself. And now we're no longer hearing from the prophets as mediators between God and man. We're now hearing directly from God himself through the prophet, the man, Jesus Christ. But he's also a priest as well as a victim, as well as a sacrifice. He is the priest who is the priest that no other priest can be. This is the Old Testament image of the priest going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood, which has to be done over and over and over again for the atonement of sins. But his sacrifice was once and for all. His blood was enough to atone forever. And so he's our priest. But now he's our king. He reigns in glory. There's not a square inch of this world that doesn't belong to him. There's not an area uh, of this world where he doesn't say that belongs to me. He's our king. And getting Jesus right determines everything. Get him wrong and you're hopelessly lost. He's not an angel, as some might suppose. That's why the author of Hebrews was writing, because they were getting Jesus wrong. They supposed him to be an angel. But in our day and age, very few people mistake Jesus for an angel. But the author of Hebrews would also say, nor is he a social activist, 
a life coach, or a moral teacher. Now, of course, he has things to say about each of those. But the fact of the matter is that the human heart is always trying to to make Jesus into someone the Bible doesn't recognize. Which is why the author of Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention lest we drift away. We have to look at the real thing and keep our eyes fixed upon him. Because if we don't, if we're not anchored to him, if we're not tethered to him, we are going to drift away and be hopelessly lost. And when we drift away, we have one of two options. We can either, as some people were doing that the author was writing to, we can either ignore him totally and put our focus and attention on a new fixed point, or we can see that we've drifted and do everything in our power to get back to where we're supposed to be. But either way, if we lose sight of who Jesus is and what he's done, we will drift. And that's when we pick up in verse 5, chapter 2. The author has already gone to great lengths to say that an angel would not be given the place of honor or authority. Jesus is no angel. And so who is he? This is where he really starts to get into it, and he's going to bring up themes already and here today that he's going to continue on throughout the entirety of his letter. Because remember, one, the people were mistaking Jesus for an angel. They had heard the gospel preached, they had come believers, but now they were thinking, well, maybe Jesus wasn't God. And a lot of that was to make it more palatable to Jewish Christians because that's who the author is writing to. Jewish believers who are finding themselves in a very awkward spot in their local synagogues believing in Jesus. And there's evidence that the local synagogue said, look, you've got to fish or cut bait on this. If you're going to remain with us, Jesus can't be who you're saying he is. And so it's understandable that some of them would say, well, maybe we won't get rid of Jesus altogether. We'll just say that he was an angel. That he was a messenger of God, because that's what angel means. Or to forsake him altogether. But it was not to any angel that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. No mere angel, but Jesus Christ himself. Now he uses a little phrase here, which is lost on all of us in our current day and age. That is... that God subjected not to angels, but to Jesus, the world to come of which we are speaking. This idea of the world to come. And this is what Christianity is all about. It's primarily future-oriented in light of the past. So it's certainly, uh, we get into chapter 13, where the author will say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But all of history is moving in one direction, and that's toward the culmination of it all, when Jesus comes back. It's about the world to come. So here we read about the world to come. In chapter 13, verse 14, we hear this. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. I'm sorry, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's what we seek. Are we seeking that? Are we seeking the world to come? This city to come? Or in chapter 6, verse 5, the author says, And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. 
The author's talking about a world to come, a city to come, and an age to come. That is what the Christian faith points to. That which is coming. Jesus returning to judge the world. Which doesn't sound all that pleasant to many people. And that's why you see the bumper sticker every once in a while on the road that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. Because when he comes back, you don't want to be found idle. There's a hymn that actually says that. Uh, uh, And yet, for the believer, uh, there couldn't be anything more wonderful and more pleasant and sweet than the return of Jesus Christ. Because that's when the world is all set to rights. I mean, every single one of us in this can't really call it a room, can you? Uh, in this space, has experienced the hardness and brokenness of life because of sin. You yourself have had cancer. You've lost someone near and dear to you because of cancer. You've experienced broken relationships. Someone near and dear to you has experienced broken relationships. And the list goes on and on and on. We all struggle. And when Jesus comes back, he sets the world to rights. There is no cancer. Those broken relationships are healed and are actually even better than they ever had the potential to be in this world. Everything is made new. He doesn't just take it and scrub it up, but everything is new. The intimacy that you share with your spouse right now, as wonderful and glorious as that may be, is nothing compared to what you're going to experience in heaven with other people. To actually look at someone... Or in the new heaven and new earth, I should say, because that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. That you are going to be able to look at people without sin, which means complete and total love for other people and that love given to you. I'm ready for it. I want it now. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, but we get a taste. We get a taste here on earth. It's a little bit like, have you ever gone out to a restaurant with someone, inevitably it's your spouse, but you may go out with a friend or something and you, uh, and you have this meal and, and you look at your friend or spouse and say, well, you ordered the wrong thing. This is what you should have gotten. This is amazing. And you, you take a spoon or a fork and you scoop it up and you hand it over to them and, and they taste it and it's glorious and it's wonderful. Uh, But they don't reach over and grab your plate and put it in front of them and start chowing down. We're given a taste. We're going to given a taste of it here on this earth. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see through a glass darkly. We catch glimpses of it. C.S. Lewis called it living in the shadowlands. Have you ever caught that glimpse of the pure love that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? It manifests itself in all kinds of ways in our daily living. Small ways, but significant, impactful ways. I mean, think right now in your own life how somebody has loved you when you didn't deserve it. And in that, even that love was tainted by sin to an extent. And yet you get a taste of it here on earth. The author here is interested in God's world and where it's headed. Because he says in verse uh, earlier, later on in verse uh, chapter one, he says that like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed that God is going to take this world and roll it up. Gone. New world. 
new heavens. He will create this new heaven and new earth. And it, it is a much bigger thing than what the world thinks Christianity is. Because what we've allowed others, including ourselves, to believe is that Christianity is about the private religious preferences of a small group of people. That is, that, well, that's good for you if that's how you want to spend your Sunday mornings going to church. Or if you're really into this Jesus thing, that's fantastic for you. But, you know, Sunday is the morning that I sleep in or get my gardening done or make my tea time or whatever it might be. And for the rest of the week, I just try the best I can and uh, make ends meet. I do uh, what I have to do. That Christianity is simply a lifestyle choice. It's a preference. But Christianity has to do with the whole history of the world, the purpose of God and the future. Of course it has to do with you and I personally, but it also has to do with the purposes of God. You know that Christians are the only people who know what the future is? We're the only ones who know. My nine-year-old Lily told me the other day, she said, they say, which if you ever speak to me and you start a sentence with they say, uh, it's over already because I want to know who they are. Uh, they say that in 2,000 years, a meteor is going to hit Earth and we're all going to die. I didn't have time to tell her this wee business of you'll be long gone, sister. But, uh, and I said, well, who are they? And she said, Scientists. Now, I wasn't going to drill down on this too much. And I said, well, Lily, I said, I'm not saying that a meteor is not going to hit the world, uh, but that's not how the world ends. That's not how the world ends. Uh, the world ends with Jesus Christ making it new. We might get hit by a meteor. God may use a meteor to bring about that. I don't know. But I and you, as believers, actually have a firmer fix on the history and future of the world, the future history of the world, than people who think they know what they're talking about. I mean, how many of y'all, I, I, actually, let's see, yeah, visit a news site at least once a day? I mean, all of us. Which means we visit it multiple times a day. I mean, I've, I've visited Central Florida where Fox News is on all day long. Right, it, all my you know my grandparents lived down there or did, and and that's what everybody's watching. And and I'll admit it, I'm you know, it's amazing to me. I I'm, I read the Washington Post uh, to my great detriment, and they had the live stream of the Kavanaugh hearings, and I actually clicked on it for a little bit, and I thought, well, I'm doing my civic duty, and I thought, what a waste of time. What a waste of time. I mean, you read any newspaper or any news site, and will you ever find this kind of stuff in it? The future of the world, which is what the news is supposed to be about? No. We read the news every day and never hear about any of this at all, because, because as human beings, we're consumed by the present, or at least by the immediate future. But the author of Hebrews says this is the future for everybody. I realize I'm spending an awful lot of time talking about just a few little words. The age to come. The world to come. The city to come. But it's because it's the future for everybody, not just Christians. And it makes sense that the world doesn't think about eternity because they believe 
because they believe in, as, and live as if this life is all there is. And so if this life is all there is, Brett Kavanaugh means a little bit more, doesn't he? Or whatever else you're reading in the newspaper. Because if the world thinks that this life is all there is, it doesn't matter what happens after you die. You just do the best you can, whatever that means, and then when you die, you die and that's it. And then everyone goes back, they throw dirt on the coffin, and then you go back to the house and eat potato salad. But the author of Hebrews says there's more to it than that. And of course the problem, if you want to cheat, you can look ahead, is death. The problem is death. We see it in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I would even go so far as to say we're not even reluctant to talk about eternity in the world because they don't get it, but we also don't talk about death. We're afraid of it. The nationwide surveys that they do are always fascinating to me, and the New York Times did a big write-up a couple years ago on why Americans are so reluctant to take vacation. Do you know why that is? It's not because we're busy little bees. It's because when you're on the beach, when you're on vacation, you're idle. And when you're idle, you stop and think about things. And people don't like to think about those things where the mind goes. Right? Uh, sort of echoes of creation there, aren't there? You start to contemplate your own mortality while you're there on the beach. You start to think about death. And so people actually, according to the New York Times, avoid vacation so that they don't have to deal with those bigger issues. For the same reason, if we do go on vacation, we take work along with us. But Jesus deals with the problem of death because we see that there's a plan for humanity, that he's coming back, but we read... It has been testified somewhere. That's very funny because it's been testified in the Psalms. But again, remember, back in the author of Hebrews' day, we didn't have chapter and verse. right? So there wasn't, if you had gone up to St. Peter while he was an apostle and said, what's Psalm 108.1? He actually would not know what you're talking about. Uh, he, he would, If you started the Psalm, he would know it. But he didn't know the reference. So it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now this is Psalm 8, which is about what? Humanity. It's about humanity. Any Jew in, at this point in time when the book of Hebrews, the epistle of the Hebrews was written, would have known that Psalm 8 was about man. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, no, because Psalm 8 doesn't make sense without Jesus. Because isn't this an echo of Genesis 1? You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Remember in Genesis 1 that man was to have dominion over creation. But we don't see this dominion, do we? It's amazing to me that human beings can control so much. But we've missed our destiny in controlling everything. And I don't mean control necessarily even in the negative sense. Of course, there are things that are beyond our control that we still continue to try to control, like our own mortality. But I'm actually talking about what God said the destiny of human beings was, was to rule over creation. Now, the word for dominion does not mean dominating or domineering. It means to steward. It means to rule in equity and justice. But we can't do that because not only can we not subdue creation, not only can we, rule, can we not rule over it, the great problem is we can't control ourselves. We don't have the ability to even have dominion over our own wills. And so there's a great irony in this. We can't even control our end. But the author of Hebrews says, ah, but that's where you're getting Psalm 8 wrong. Because if you want to understand your full potential as a man or woman, it's to understand it through Jesus Christ. Because he was the one who was made for a while little lower than the angels, but now is crowned with glory and honor, and everything has been put in subjection under his feet. That's, that's remarkable to me because often people say, well, Christianity is primarily about the spiritual self. You know, Jesus is a spiritual consideration, but Hebrews is telling us, oh, no, 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 no. If you really want to be a man or a woman as God intended, or as you really want to be, it has to be through Jesus. Psalm 8 is messianic. Only Jesus can make sense of what is being said. And you notice in chapter 1, he goes to great lengths to talk about Jesus as creator, as Lord, as Messiah. But for the first time, and he'll do it again, how does he refer to the Lord here? By his first name, in verse 9, namely Jesus. That's his human name. The author of Hebrews is wanting you to understand that he's not just God, but he's man as well. And man he must be in order to do what he came to do. He stresses Jesus' humanity as a man because he has fulfilled human destiny. Both God and man. And so the question that the author of Hebrews is writing or asking is when Jesus returns, will he rule alone? Will there be nobody to rule with him? No. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. A great multitude that no one can number, will be awaiting his return. Now he uses a funny word here, that it was fitting that Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make 
the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why would the author, what, what does he mean by fitting? Well, remember the context of the letter, writing to Jewish believers in Jesus who have backslidden and have forsaken Christianity and gone back to the old ways. Jesus crucified is the great offense to the Jews. That's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament. It's the stumbling block. It doesn't make any sense. Certainly not. But even worse, why is it a stumbling block? Because these Jewish individuals have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and have remained within the synagogue and were given the impression that life would be sunshine and lollipops now that they were in Jesus. And yet in many ways, after becoming Christians, their life has become worse. They've experienced persecution, some of them to the point of death. That Christ died for sins is the great difficulty for Jews in the New Testament period. They simply cannot handle it. I mean, think of a conversation. If you are a Jewish believer in Jesus and you go visit uh, your Uncle Abraham and your Uncle Abraham says, now tell me what this is all about this Jesus thing. Well, he died for me. Yes, uh, we, I remember that. He was crucified, uh, but we haven't seen hide nor hair of him since. And yet you go around believing that, that he, somehow his, his death was glorious when it was a death that would actually make you unclean, uh, ritually speaking. And furthermore, uh, now that you follow this Jesus, uh, your life has gotten so terrible and you're persecuted. And I'm the only family member that will speak to you. Uh, and uh, it just doesn't make any sense uh, to me that you would want to heap such a terrible burden upon yourself. If that really was of God, is that really what God would want for you? That was a side note. I find it interesting in all days and ages that we're constantly telling people what God must do and what he mustn't do. God doesn't want you to be sick. How do you know? God doesn't want you to struggle with this issue. Paul cried out multiple times that God would remove this thorn from, from the side of his flesh. And did God ever remove it? No. But it was kept there so that Paul would understand that God's power is made manifest in his weakness. Because that's the, the fault that all of us have. Lord, if you would just do this for me, everything would be great. And then the moment he does it, we think that we've arrived. I've told you about my grandfather, who used to always look, and we do this in our family, for a dear Lord good spot when you pull in the parking lot of a crowded area. And he would begin to pray for a spot. Lord, give us, and on one occasion, he didn't even get that far. He said, Lord, and a car pulled out, and he said, never mind. No, God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. There's a wonderful another line in that hymn by William Cooper that says that behind the frown of providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind the frown of providence, he hides a smiling face. 
But because of the great difficulty that these believers were experiencing, it's no wonder that they felt that Jesus Christ was very much a stumbling block in their own lives. And finally, the author tells us that he brings many sons to glory and should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the author is not saying that Jesus is imperfect in any way. By perfect, he means, and he's going, we might as well tackle this word now because he's going to use it a lot. Perfect means complete and adequate for its purpose. Complete and adequate for its purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus' death upon the cross does for us. It's complete, it's perfect, and adequate for its purpose. It does what it's supposed to do. Now, we don't live like Jewish believers back that the author of Hebrews is writing to. In fact, uh, uh, we live in an area of the country which is still uh, heavily churched, and going to church is not uh, such uh, a radical thing. And yet let us not slip into thinking that it is some sort of private preference uh, amongst uh, individuals, but that we would be able to see who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us and the whole arc of history and understanding that our minds and our hearts are to be oriented toward the age to come, the world to come, and the city to come, and that Jesus, even through our own suffering, is perfect, and that if he suffered in the way that uh, if he suffered in the way that he did, he promises that our suffering would in fact be no different than what he encountered all those years ago in the city of Jerusalem. We have one minute for questions. I haven't stopped, and I, I want to stop, so if anyone has any questions or comments or concerns, uh, please, please do. Um, at the bottom of my, uh, I have this wee book here that I use for my notes. I was dictating to one of my daughters, uh, and so I can't quite make out what I said. Nothing about Hebrews, history, newspapers. Okay, we'll press on and finish up chapter 2 uh, next uh, week, and then we really, really, really get into it. And uh, you'll forgive me, because each week I'm probably going to take five minutes at the start to go back, uh, because it's, it's, you can't deal with any of this in isolation. Because one of the things that you find about the author of Hebrews, and I will say this lastly, is that he has... It's the remarkable combination of someone who is not just a great brain, but a wonderful pastor, which almost never, ever go together. Uh, normally, either one has a great brain and they never make it in, in a church setting, uh, or they're a wonderful pastor who uh, needs a little bit of help exercising their brains. Uh, but in the author of Hebrews, we see both, uh, which is a rare and wonderful gift. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.